I have a confession to make in light of this story that has just been growing in me in the last, for the last couple of weeks as I've been studying and reading this, this text. I, I know very little about the grace of gentleness. That's, that's my confession. If you want to check here and join me in that, that's up to you this morning. I know this, I know very little about the grace of gentleness. I'm much better at being critical, sarcastic, self-righteous, but it should not be that way for Christians. It should not be that way for us as believers, we who have tasted of the mercy of God. It's so deeply ironic that we as Christians are as good as anyone at shaming one another. The old man who still lives within us, who loves to shame other people to sort of better himself, he's so so strong. He still lives inside of us. The old nature, the old self, the old sin nature is so strong. We gossip, we judge, we interrupt, we mock, we are stingingly sarcastic. All forms of shaming one another. We are accomplished at this. We are, we are well accomplished at shaming one another, and we seem to enjoy pointing out when others are wrong, even, even energized by, by blowing the whistle or catching somebody in an infraction. Guilty. We stand guilty as charged. But if you're thinking about the Christian faith, if you're considering Christianity, let me assure you of this. We never learned this from Jesus. Christians... Christians might be good at shaming one another to our own shame, but we never learn that from Jesus because Jesus doesn't shame people. And that's the beauty of this scene in his life. He he doesn't come to bring condemnation. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. This has to be one of the greatest scenes in the life of Jesus that makes that very point. Others will shame this woman. Others will delight in shaming her, but not Jesus. Now, we're in a bit of a pickle here. Let me explain. You'll see some brackets at 753, the end of chapter 7, the beginning of chapter 8. Look at your Bible for just a moment, and you've either got a footnote or a bracket or something that says um, the earliest manuscripts are not included do not include this particular section of the Gospel of John. Basically, without boring you with details, what I want to say is that in the earliest Greek manuscripts that we have unearthed, we don't find this section of the Gospel of John. Uh, and, and most conservative scholars are in agreement that, that that's the case. But what we don't question is whether or not the early church adopted it into the Gospel of John for good reason. Apparently, the church saw good reason, uh, and there were differing views on whether to include it, so it was included. And what we don't question is that this incident actually happened in the life of Jesus. It is in, totally in concert with who he is and what he would do to minister to and reach out to those who are shamed and outcasts. So whether or not it's part of John's original manuscript or not, I'm going to set that to the side for a moment. If you have an interest in talking further about that, would love to talk with you about that. Uh, What I want to say this morning is we have really no reason to doubt the veracity of the story. And so we learn much from this story that is in concert with the life of Jesus. And what do we learn? 
What do we learn from this scene in this moment in his life and in this woman's life? We learn that he is full of grace and truth, right? He is full of grace and truth. No one, no, no one has ever combined justice and compassion so perfectly. We've never seen anything like this in the world and never will again. He is the most perfectly integrated personality, the most wise, life-giving, balanced personality, uh, human being that we've ever met. Jesus is the embodiment of both compassion and justice. I love the way Tim Keller described it. He's not just a kind of compromise between strong and tender. He's not just kind of a, a compromise between strong at one moment and then tender at another moment, but rather he is just and righteous to the nth degree, and he is compassionate and gracious to the nth degree. These two traits, Keller says, these two traits don't fight in him, they unite in him. Well said. Jesus is the embodiment of an integrated compassion and justice like we've never seen before. I want you to see how Jesus treats this woman, how he deals gently with her, how he has dealt gently with you, and therefore how we, help me out here, should deal gently with one another. Let's start with um, this trap that they're setting the Pharisees are good at setting traps. They're setting a trap. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn it, but the Pharisees sure did. <laughs> they wanted to condemn her, and they wanted even more so, if you know the flow of John's gospel, to condemn him. They want to capture him. And they set a trap for him, and it's a really crafty trap. It's a good trap. Look at verse 2. Early in the morning, he came to the temple, Jesus, that is, and all the people came to him, and he began to teach them. This was his habit. And the scribes and the Pharisees, they're getting fed up with this. So they bring to him a woman who's been caught in adultery. And they place her in the midst. And they say to him, Rabbi, teacher, this woman's been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, we're commanded to stone such a woman. What do you say? Look at verse 6. Key, key verse 6. This they said to trap him to test him, to capture him, so that they could bring a charge against him. Look at the trap. This is, a, this is really a brilliant trap, I mean, uh, worldly speaking, you know, from the world's perspective. Because if he disavows the law of Moses, what happens? If he disavows the law of Moses, he immediately loses credibility among the Jews, right? If he disavows the law of Moses, his credibility tanks immediately. And on top of that, he's been saying things like, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill the law. Again, he loses his credibility. On the other hand, if he upholds the law of Moses, as it's described here, he will almost certainly be affirming a distorted and unjust application of the law found in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy. After all, where's the man who was caught in the act with her. This scene reeks of a, of a good old boy system that exploits women. And even more to the heart of the gospel, he would appear to be going against his own well-known teaching and, and compassion for sinners and the outcast and, and the broken and the disgraceful. It's a really good trap. It's a trap that's motivated by a devilish, satanic ingenuity. It's a brilliant trap. They've got him. 
They've got him right where they want. Aha, we've got him right. If he upholds the law, we've got him there. If he disavows the law, oh, we've really got him there. We've got him. What's going to happen? They've got Jesus trapped. You can't trap Jesus. Are you kidding me? You thought Houdini was good? You can't trap the master. And look at what Jesus does. Verse 7, he bends down to write something on the ground. And he's not just buying time. He's not trying to figure out what to say. Everyone wants to know what he wrote in the dust. Was he writing a verse of Old Testament scripture? Maybe a verse of judgment. Yeah, give it to the Pharisees, Jesus. Or maybe he's writing a verse of mercy. Maybe he was writing something about the mercy of God that he's about to to give freely to this woman. We don't know. No one knows. Anybody who tells you that they're sure they know what Jesus was writing, ah, this is what he was writing, be careful. We, We don't know. We just don't know what he was writing. We can't be certain about what he was writing. But don't let that distract you from the more obvious point, in my opinion, It's not so much what he was writing, but that he was writing on the ground. Not so much that he, not so much what he was writing on the ground, but that he was writing on the ground. That his simple act of humility was the first step in neutralizing this intense moment of shaming. Imagine what's happening here. They they surround this woman. She's been caught in the act of adultery. They bring her in, and there's this circle of judgment just against her, and they She's right in the midst, and they say to him, what do you say about her sin? And immediately, he gets down and starts drawing on the ground in the dust, just neutralizing this moment of towering judgment over her. He went lower than she. Do you see what's happening here? He went lower than she was. No doubt she's feeling shame and held, uh, head held low and, and, and probably in a posture of shame and, and, and self-defense and brokenness. And these men just seem to be delighting in shaming her. And Jesus says, I'll see you and raise you one lower. I'm going to get down here. I think it has as much to do that he went to the ground to write as that he wrote something. He stoops low. And since the mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, he considers his words before he speaks. And then he stands back up, full of compassion and justice, and he's going to answer two different He's going to answer them, and then he's going to speak to her. He's going to stand back up with compassion and judgment and speak to them, and then he's going to stoop back down, stand back up, and say something to her. That's the basic outline for the rest of our time this morning. Jesus is the embodiment of gentleness, compassion, and justice, and look at how he answers. Now, when he stands back up, in my mind's eye, I imagine that he stands back up off the ground, makes eye contact with these men, these accusers, standing over him, and and he looks at them with a, really a piercing sense of both compassion and justice mingled together. And he, and he says, 
let him who has no sin cast the first stone. He doesn't stand up and make eye contact with them and say, make my day, you know, like Clint Eastwood or something. He doesn't do that. He stands up with such strength. He's not afraid. He stands up with such strength and dignity and compassion and justice, and he looks at their eyes and he says, throw a stone if you can. He doesn't say don't throw a stone. It's a brilliant answer. It's an amazing answer, an answer that only the Son of God could give. He doesn't undermine the law of Moses in any way. He never actually says a stone shouldn't be thrown. He says, throw a stone if you can. Whoever among you is not guilty of sin, throw and throw and throw if you're ready. What's he doing? He's not undermining the law. Nor is he suggesting that only sinless, perfect people could enforce the law. Not at all. He's doing the very thing that the law was given to do. The law was given to bring us to an awareness of our need for Christ. Jesus is the embodiment of bringing to awareness our need for God. He's the embodiment and fulfillment of the law. This is what it means when it says, I came to fulfill the law. I didn't come to destroy it. So he's literally living out what the law was supposed to do. He's revealing the hearts of men. He is, he is saying to them at this moment, when, when he says, whoever is without sin, be the first to cast a stone and throw a stone. When he says that, what he's doing here is he's, he's revealing the hearts of men. He's saying, you men are disqualified. You're not. You're you are disqualified from being objective witnesses. You are disqualified for being an executioner of justice. Why? Because you don't understand the law. Where is the man with whom she was caught? The text says, or the story says, she was caught in the very act of adultery. That must mean there was a man caught too. Where is he? The Old Testament law was very clear that both guilty persons, persons should receive the appropriate judgment. There's no, there's no double standard in the favor of men in the Bible. I want you to know this if you're thinking about what Christianity is and what it's all about. There is no double standard in the Bible in favor of men. There's the, the Old Testament and the New Testament consistently abhor, God abhors partiality of men over women, over rich over poor, of, of Jew over Gentile. The Bible, in fact, one of the main themes that you will see running through the Bible is the theme of justice. God loves justice and equity. Jesus is saying, Jesus is revealing, Jesus is saying, look, at the very least, this is a scene in which prejudice is being shown in the favor of men, a particular man who is conveniently right now nowhere to be found. More more likely, though, than that, it's probably, the case, it's probably a case of entrapment, maybe even engineered by the very man who's done with this woman in his little tryst, and he wants a slick way out. There's no desire for justice. There's no trial with both guilty parties present. They bring her out 
to publicly humiliate her and seem to be enjoying it. They don't care about her. They're using her, shaming her in order to get Jesus trapped so they can shame him. So what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say? He says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. What is he saying? He's saying, I know your hearts. He's saying, I know your hearts. The very law of Moses that you invoke today, you are breaking. What about your own adulterous, idolatrous hearts? Your hypocrisy is a stench before God. He's saying, what about the law against conspiracy? What about the law against partiality? What about the law against injustice? I don't deny the law of Moses. I do not deny the law of Moses. What I deny is that you would use the law of Moses for your purposes. What I deny is that by the law of Moses, you would seek to execute justice. I don't deny the law of Moses. But by the law of Moses, I deny that you are qualified to do what you are doing right now. It is hypocrisy and it lacks the justice of God. You know, this is exactly, I'm on a, we're on a bit of a Les Mis kick, and if you haven't seen Les Mis, the most recent one that Masterpiece Theaters put out, I would encourage you to do it, probably for 16 and up. Um, but it's, it's amazing, the character development of Javert, because Javert, this, this is exactly what is happening to Javert in Les Mis. The inspector, the policeman, the guy who can't let go of the pursuit, his thought of the pursuit of justice with Jean Valjean. He, look, Javert is... is is so powerfully confronted with compassion, but he, he doesn't have a way for compassion and justice to fit together. He can't figure out how compassion and justice fit together. He's so powerfully confronted with the grace and compassion of Jean Valjean that he doesn't know what to do with it. So in the end, he stands on the bridge over the Seine, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, and he's about to take his own life. Why? Because he's laying down his stones. He's come to this place of brokenness. He's come to this place of being overwhelmed with compassion and grace and, and justice and restoration, but he can't, but it, it, it won't, the formula won't balance in his own life. And so, like these men, he throws his stones to the ground. And Javert just throws himself over the bridge. It's the way he puts his stones down and walks away. These men don't experience, so far as we can tell, God's grace, not in a redemptive sense. They see it. They're shocked by Jesus' demonstration of compassion and mercy, but they don't know what to do. So they put their stones down, and they walk away. It says, beginning when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman. Now here comes the gospel moment in the story. Watch for it. It's in verse 10. This is the gospel moment in the story, verse 10. Jesus 
stood back up. Now remember, he had stepped down again. He, he stepped down. So twice in the story, he demonstrates his, he, he, he is the, again, the embodiment of humility. He steps down. While these men are thinking about what he said and leaving one by one, he's still down on the ground drawing. And once they leave, Like this, this physical display of, I mean, just in my sanctified imagination, I'm wondering, does he look back up at her and say in his own mind, I, I'm taking your shame. I'm down here. See, this is the gospel moment. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. How can he say, How can he be the son of God and love righteousness and justice and the vindication of all things true and right? How can he say say he's the son of God who loves righteousness and justice? How can he say I'm the fulfillment of the law of Moses? Clearly she's guilty. How does he say neither do I condemn you? How does he say that? Clearly she's guilty. I mean, he's already said, or he's about to say, sin no longer. He sees her guilt. He knows she's guilty. She knows she's guilty. She was caught in the act. He knows she's guilty. How can Jesus, listen, how can Jesus be the son of God who loves righteousness and justice, know she's guilty, and let her walk away? How can he do that? Watch this closely. This is the essence of Christianity. He says, I didn't come to condemn you. I came to be condemned for you. I came to be condemned in place of you. I came to stand between you and the shame. You are guilty. You feel very real shame right now. I have come not to pronounce condemnation and shame and guilt. I have come to step in between you and the rightful wrath of God. I didn't come to condemn you. I came to be condemnation. I came to be the one who would be condemned for you in your place. Think about what Jesus would have meant by this. Think about what Jesus would have meant by what he said. Neither do I condemn you. Are you seeing this? Neither do I condemn you. Instead, I'm going to go, yes, yes, stones should be thrown today, but they will be thrown at me. Yes, thorns ought to be pressed down, but they will go into my skull. Yes, spikes ought to be driven deeply in to the guilty's hands, but they will pierce my hands instead. Yes, spears ought to be launched. Listen, here's what I want you to understand about Christianity. Christianity makes the most sense of how to reconcile guilt and condemnation and freedom only through Christ. That's the heart of the gospel, to be found guilty and yet not condemned, to be found full of shame and yet made clean, washed clean. God made him, 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might experience the righteousness of God in him. Man, what a beautiful thought that while Jesus is on the ground, 
She's looking down at him. Have you ever been in an intense moment of shame? Have you ever been in an intense moment of embarrassment, shame, and guilt? What would it have been like for you to look and see somebody below you? It would give you hope. Jesus gives her hope. I have not come to condemn you. I came to rescue you. You deserve condemnation. That is true. You deserve, you've been caught. You're guilty. But I haven't come to pour out my judgment on you. I came to stand between you and the judgment of God. The judgment of a holy, righteous God wants to be meted out and poured out on you. And, and you and I both know this is just the beginning of your guilt but I'm going to come and stand in between you and the condemnation and the justice and the wrath of God. Look, here's why you don't want to minimize your sin. You minimize your sin, you minimize the power of the gospel. Jesus doesn't minimize her sin. He acknowledges it. He acknowledges her sin and her shame, but then he quickly steps right in between it, it says... I will take it for you. And any gospel that doesn't include that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Stop looking for alternative answers to your shame and your guilt. Jesus, when the world surrounds you with everything you've done wrong, when the accuser, we're going to talk more about him next Sunday, when the accuser is there, look down. See Jesus writing on the ground, humiliated to neutralize the power of sin and death on your behalf. Would you pray with me? Ask God for help. Lord Jesus, I pray this morning that for those who are struggling with guilt and shame, that they would hear these words resound to your glory, neither do I condemn you. Follow me into freedom. Embrace my cross. See me high and lifted up to bring you saving, free-flowing, unending mercy. Neither do I condemn you. God, make us a people. Oh, Lord, we know so little about blessing. We prefer to curse. We know so little about giving the grace of gentleness. We prefer to condemn. Would you awaken in this body an amazing resource of grace-giving gentleness and kindness and compassion and mercy? Would you teach us to be like Christ? As a people, teach us the grace of gentleness. By your Spirit, do what only you could do this morning. We pray in Christ's name.